0: couldn't hear him because his mic went off too quick. That's cool. (laughs) But good job. You did it anyway. Uh, So we're in week three of our series on the Sermon on the Mount. uh, And we are talking about true righteousness today. So in week one, we talked a little bit about how we can't accomplish the expectations that God has for us on our own right? So there's this righteousness that's out there that is beyond our ability. That was kind of like the launching point for it. And then we talked about the fact that as we live out that righteousness that we can't attain, that God has to give to us, uh, as we live that out, then we look different. We act different. We're just different from the world around us. And people can tell that we're not the same as they are because we have this righteousness from God. Last week, Mike talked a little bit about some of the blessings That come from following Jesus, from being a person that is different, that has been transformed by the grace of God. Those blessings aren't necessarily what we always think of as blessings, right? So, you know, "Blessed are the poor in spirit." Doesn't mean like, oh, if you're poor in spirit, then eventually you'll be wealthy and and you know you'll have everything that you ever want. It actually means that you're going to be more satisfied with the character of God because you've got that attitude toward Him, Uh, and so a little bit different as far as the blessing. So this week, we're gonna let it get a little bit real. We kind of get into like the meat of it. Like this is, this is where it gets really tough. Um, not that it hasn't already been tough, uh, but we're gonna be in in Matthew. We're gonna be in, in chapter five and we're gonna go through verse 30. And really this section from, from chapter 17 to verse to the end of the chapter is sort of all one thought. That's why this is true righteousness part one. Next week, we'll do part two. It's the same set of ideas, but with different specific applications. So we'll be dealing with more applications next week, but sort of the idea as a whole a little bit this week. So Matthew chapter five, starting in verse 17. This is again, Jesus teaching people that are are following him. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever lacks one of the least of these commandments and teaches other to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's kind of this first section on law. And that sounds a little bit confusing. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna open this up with a couple of definitions and hopefully that will help us think through this in, in a way that's, that's helpful. So when Jesus says, uh, the, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, what he's talking about is the Old Testament. Okay, so everything from Genesis to Malachi. So Jesus says the law and the prophets. The reason he says that is because in Jesus' day, they thought of the Old Testament as divided into three categories, the law, the writings, and the prophets. So the law is the first five books, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Boom, yeah, that was harder than it should have been. Right? So then, and then the prophets, like the middle part is mostly writings. We have a little bit different order, so it's a little bit confusing. But from like after the Song of Solomon to the end of the Old Testament for us, we would call what they would call the prophets. There's a couple prophets that are before that, but like most of the end of it is all the prophets, right? So, I'm not going to even try that. That's all like Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, like all those guys, right? The ones you can't spell. Uh, so that's the prophet. So when Jesus says all the law and the prophets, he's saying everything that God said in the Old Testament, that's still valid. That's still a thing that's important. So he's very specifically saying everything that you read in the Old Testament is something that you still need to pay attention to. And we're like, okay, some of that sounds good. I like some of that, right? You read Psalms and you're like, this is so helpful. This prayer is amazing, right? You read Proverbs and you're like, these are so practical. These are so helpful. And then you read Leviticus and you're like, oh no. (laughs) Like there's big chunks in there that you're like, I don't think this is something I'm supposed to do. And if I am, I'm in big trouble because I think Sterling Heights is gonna be mad if I start killing animals. Like that's gonna be a problem, right? Like we don't, we, we recognize the fact that there's a bunch of stuff in the Old Testament that we don't do. So if Jesus is not abolishing the Old Testament, like what what's the point of it? Like, why is it there? If he's gonna hang on to it, like we need to figure that out, right? So what's the purpose of the law? Why, why are all these rules that don't necessarily apply to us, why are those there? Uh, so Paul explains this in Galatians. So we're gonna move into Galatians for a little bit. Um, we're gonna be in Galatians chapter three. We'll kind of hop around inside that chapter. So in Galatians chapter three, Paul is telling the Galatians, the church that's in the city of Galatia, why they don't have to follow the Old Testament rules, okay? So that's, that's Paul's explaining this to a very specific church. So Galatians chapter 3, starting verse 2. I'm going to read from the NLT because it doesn't take anything away, and it's so much smoother in English here when Paul's making complex arguments. Okay, Chapter three, verse two. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. So Paul's making this argument. Listen, you guys have the Holy Spirit. The only way that you have the Holy Spirit is by having a relationship with God, right? Like it doesn't come any other way. Did you get the Holy Spirit because you followed all the rules in the Old Testament, the law of Moses? No, that's not how you got that. That's not how that happened. What happened very specifically is you heard that Jesus was the Messiah. You said, I need that. I need a Messiah to save me from my sin. I am a sinner, Jesus, I need you. And then you repented, you turned to Jesus and Jesus washed away your sins. And you got the Holy Spirit and you were, you were Christian. You had a relationship with God. So he's like, if that's how it happened, then that's how it happened, right? Like you don't have to follow the law in order to have that relationship with God. So that's what we call the grace of God, right? Like we didn't follow the rules. We came to Jesus and we said, I can't follow the rules. I'm very bad at following the rules. Jesus, can you please give me your grace, right? And so Jesus gives us that, not because we earned it, not because we deserve it, but because he loves us and he wants us to have it. And we come to him in faith and we're obedient, right? So some of us think that we're rule followers, right? Like if you're a person that follows the rules, you think I'm kind of a rule follower, but actually before God, being a rule follower means all the rules all the time. And if we consider ourselves a rule follower, I don't, I'm not that person. Um, But if we consider ourselves a rule follower, then we follow most of the rules most of the time is really what it comes down to. There's a couple that we ignore. There's a couple that we only get about half the time, Right. and so we're not actually rule followers. We're rule breakers before God. So we have to come to Jesus in faith in order to have that relationship with him. But that doesn't answer the first question, which is why do we have the law then? If we can't do it, it has to be the grace of God. Why do we need all these rules to begin with? Skip down to verse 19. Why then was the law given? Same argument. It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. So God in his infinite wisdom recognized that we were rule breakers. And he said, you can't have a relationship with me on your own. And so I'm going to give you a a Messiah, a Savior, a Redeemer that is going to fix that problem that you have broken all the rules and that you can't have a relationship with me. So that's the child. So you go through the Old Testament. You start in like Genesis 3. And there's this promise that this Messiah is going to come the whole way through. But along with that, God also knows that we're pretty arrogant and we like to think well of ourselves. And we don't really do good with dealing with the truth. And so God said, in addition to giving you someone to redeem you from your sin, I'm gonna remind you that you're actually sinners. Here's the set of rules that you need to follow. If you can't, you have to have a savior. So the rules that are laid out in the Old Testament are very much God pointing out to us the fact that we can't be in a right relationship with him. We can't follow the rules because we would lie to ourselves. We would lie to ourselves and say, I can do it, I can handle it, I don't really need anything. And the law is there to remind us we can't do it we really, really, really need Jesus. And so we have the law because God needed to remind us how holy he is, what the standard is, what the expectation is. And then when we break that standard, when we can't meet those expectations, we realize we need Jesus. That's the point of the law, to point us back to Jesus. But then Jesus said he's not gonna get rid of the law. Right? Like he said, very specifically, we just read it, I'm not gonna abolish the law. So what does that mean then? Right? Because if the law is given and it's here and we know we're sinners, but then shouldn't Jesus just kind of be able to wad it up and throw it away? But he doesn't do that. He says it's gonna be fulfilled. It's gonna happen. It's gonna be completed. So when we say that Jesus fulfills the law, there are two, things, two ideas that are kind of working together there. Uh, The first one is it's meeting a requirement. So the law sort of lays out this list of requirements that have to be accomplished. And Jesus says, I can do that, right? So he came to earth as a human being. He was God in the flesh. He came to earth as a human being and he was perfect. Every single expectation that the law had, Jesus checked off. Yup, did that, did that right? Like there was nothing. It says, you know, don't do this. Jesus never did that. It said, make sure you do this. Jesus did all of that. There's 600 and some commandments in there. Jesus punched them all out. Like he's literally the one that's like every single rule, he, he got it right. So he fulfilled the law of the requirements. The understanding, the other understanding of fulfillment that I think is helpful here is the idea of completion. Fulfillment is, yeah, it's punching out the list of requirements. It's also saying this is the appropriate conclusion of this thing. And so Jesus is the appropriate conclusion of the law. Jesus fills out all the requirements. And he said, all right, guys, it's done. Set it aside. I filled it. I handled it. It's done. It's completed. So he didn't th- wad it up and throw it away. He said, I'm going to actually accomplish it. I'm going to do all the things that are necessary before God. Back in, in Galatians 3, starting in verse 10, Paul writes it this way. For those who depend on the law to make them right before God are under his curse. For the scripture says, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. Right? So if we're aiming to fulfill the law, we're not going to be able to do it. We're going to be under God's curse. Verse 11. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scripture says it is through faith that a righteous person has life. Verse 12, the way of faith is very different from the way of the law in which says it is through the law that a person, through obeying the law that a person has life. But Christ rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law when he hung on the cross. He took on himself the curse for our wrongdoing for it is written in the scriptures, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So Jesus fulfills the law. He takes the curse of the law on himself and he dies on the cross. And so we don't have to do it. Jesus fulfilled it completely. Every piece of it is accomplished, it's done. Jesus accomplished it on the cross. And so we come to him in faith and we say, I can't fulfill the law. Jesus, I need your fulfillment of the law to do it for me. You have to be the one that does it because I can't. If I do it, I'm gonna miss it. I'm gonna fail and I'm gonna be under the curse of God. Instead, you have to do it for me. And so he does that for us, right? He gives us his, his righteousness, his perfection, his fulfillment of the law comes to us when we approach him in faith. David Platt writes it this way. Jesus came to fulfill the intention of the Old Testament, that is to bring it to its intended completion. And the fulfillment Jesus has in mind here is in relation to the Old Testament is not simply external conformity to its commands, but rather a heart alive to God. That is what the the law called for all along. So when Jesus fulfilled the law, He's saying, listen, there's a whole list of rules that you have to punch out. But beneath that, those rules point us to this attitude of love for God. So Jesus did that perfectly, but that's the part that we were invited to be a part of. That's the part that we need to do now, right? It's that attitude underneath of saying, I recognize that I'm a sinner and I have to have that relationship with God, but I really wanna honor and glorify God with everything that I say and do. That's the heart of the law that we're still sort of Trying to do. So we can't meet the demands. We're under this demand of the law for external conformity. We can't do that. And honestly, we actually can't fulfill the part where we have to have a heart that's turned toward God. Like we can't do that on our own either. We have this natural tendency to sort of start off in that direction and then we get distracted and pulled away because we're sinful. Like we have sinful hearts. But Jesus never had that distraction. And so when we come to him in faith, we confess our sin, we repent and we say, Jesus, I can't do it, I can't do it. You have to do it for me. And he gives us a heart that's actually turned toward God, right? Like that's part of what the Holy Spirit does is he reminds us this is the direction we have to go. This is how you need to live your life. This is what you need to do in order to have that healthy relationship with God. Jesus gives us even the ability to do that. We have to have that from him. So we come to him in faith, we admit that we can't keep the law, we admit that we're sinners, and we get his righteousness, his perfect fulfillment of all of that law. That's the thing that we get in exchange for our confession, for our repentance. And then when we stand before God, we are truly righteous. Not because we check the box, because we can't, right? We're truly righteous because Jesus gave us his righteousness, like that's the starting point for righteousness. It's not, I can follow the rules. I've got a different set of rules that I can follow. It's, no, it's never the external thing. It's always, it has to come from Jesus. It has to be by faith in him. That's the starting point for eternal righteousness. Our big idea today is this. True righteousness is deeper than following the rules and we can only have it through Jesus, right? So a heart that actually is in relationship with God, that is righteous, doesn't come because I checked all the boxes. It doesn't come because I followed the rules, whether that's the Sermon on the Mount, whether that's the Old Testament, whether that's some new rules that I invented. Following the rules can't give you righteousness. It has to be through the grace of God. It has to be through Jesus. So then we've got these rules. We have this new heart. Why do we need the Sermon on the Mount? Right? Like I should be able to just be like, I have righteousness because Jesus gave it to me. I should be good. So this is the difference between fulfilled and, and set aside, right? So fulfilled means it still points us back to God. There's still a lot of rules that are really helpful to remind us what the character and nature of God is. If you read the Old Testament, it's not pointless. There's a whole lot of good information about who God is and how God acts and what God thinks about things in the Old Testament. We understand the character of God from the entire Bible, not just a couple of chapters in the New Testament. So, it's really about what's the character of God and how do I respond to Him. So, I I quoted, I said a couple things two weeks ago that I'm going to remind you of, okay? So, I said this on the front end. This is not new. The Sermon on the Mount is an invitation from Jesus for us to demonstrate the character of God and His kingdom so that others will glorify God. So, the Sermon on the Mount isn't, I have to check this off in order to be a Christian. The Sermon on the Mount is God has given me this as an opportunity to show the world who he is, right? Like I'm demonstrating the character of God. I'm I'm the representation of Jesus in the world. And this is how my character lines up with the character of God. And then a quote from, from Bob Mounts, the, kingdom, or the Sermon on the Mount is a character sketch of those who have already entered the kingdom and a description of the quality of ethical life, which is now expected of them. In a sense, it is the true essential Christianity. So as we go through these expectations, it's not, I have to do this in order to be righteous. I have to do this to be a good person. It's, this is what God asks of me as a reflection of his character. So it is unobtainable. There's no way that we're gonna actually do this. The key to this, the key to real righteousness is as we fail to reflect the character of God perfectly, then we come back to him in faith and be like, God, I can't fulfill the rules. I can't fulfill the expectations. I need the grace of God. I need Jesus to cover me for that, right? So it's always this pull between I can't accomplish what God expects me to do and then repent and then try again. Like it's always that sort of back and forth. Because look at what Jesus says in the next two verses, right? He says in verse 19, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Why is it tied to that? Because if I come to Jesus in faith, I can't do this and I'm very bad at it. And then I say, but it's okay, I'm bad at it. And God loves me anyway. Then I may get into heaven. Like there's a chance, right? But also I'm the least in the kingdom of heaven because I'm not really paying attention to what the character of God is. And I think there's a line there where you have to question whether or not you're actually in the kingdom of God or not. I think that's a little bit fuzzy. But on the flip side, if you actually try and obey the character of God, if you try and line your life up with what God asks you to, that, that's what it takes to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Obedience and submission to the will of God, none of the other stuff. And then he reminds us, we're terrible at this, right? Verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In verse 20, the scribes and the Pharisees are the people that everybody thought were the best rule followers out there. And Jesus says, you can be, you have to be better than the best rule follower you can imagine in order to be good enough for God. You can't get there. You need the grace of God. So in verse 17 and 18, Jesus says, he didn't come to throw out the rules. He says, you need to keep them, right? But also he's gonna give us his perfection. But he also admits they're very important. We can't just toss them out. In verse 19, he says, it's not our place to decide which rules we follow and which ones we don't. We have to follow what, what the law is. And then in verse 20, he says, the people that you think are the best still aren't good enough. You still need the grace of God, right? So I don't get to pick and choose. I just have to do my best in order to be obedient. So David Platt again says this, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was purely an external righteousness. But Jesus says that it's not enough to be righteous on the outside if you're not righteous in the middle, on the inside. What Jesus is demanding is not more righteousness, deeds by human effort, but more righteous hearts by divine grace. Okay, so that's a little bit abstract. Let me try and be a little bit more practical. Has anybody ever taken a class with a lab? Okay, so you take the class with the lab, right? Let's pretend that it's 30% uh, paperwork, test work, right? And 70% lab. That's backwards from the way it normally is, I get that. But it's 30% paperwork and 70% lab. And Jesus is saying, the Pharisees and the scribes are killing it on the paperwork section. They're writing the papers, they're taking the test. They've got a 95, not good enough. And I think sometimes we think, if I get a 98 on the paperwork part, I'm gonna get a good grade, right? They got a 95, I can do better. I can do a 97, I can do a 99, right? And Jesus is like, no, 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 you're missing it. That's not gonna get you an A. You get perfect on the paperwork side, you're still gonna fail the class because the class is the lab, right? Like that's the part that you need the good grade on. So Jesus is saying, what's the lab? What's the lab part? The lab part is my heart, my relationship, my submission to what God calls me to do and my obedience to him and my desire to actually walk with him. Like it's the heart, Because I'm gonna, honestly, they're not getting a 97. They're getting an F no matter what, right? Because they're only doing the one part. That's the external part. There's this whole internal part where I have to be submitted to who God is and and live my life in a reflection of his character as an attitude, not as an external thing. Just to make sure you guys understand the metaphor, the Pharisees weren't gonna get even a 95 on on the other half. Like They were were failing the whole thing. They were doing bad in the whole thing, right? So then Jesus spends, so this is what we're gonna spend the next two weeks on is that Jesus starts to give us these two examples. And, And what he breaks it down is you have heard it said. So this is something that's been taught to you before. That's an external rule that you think that you need to follow, right? You have heard it said. And then he says, but I say to you, and he gives you a whole lot more demanding set of rules that are about your heart attitude, that are about the way that you make choices and internal decisions rather than the external thing that people see. So Jesus is saying, okay, this is the class, the Old Testament, you might understand that. Now I'm gonna explain to you how you use this in the lab. I'm gonna explain to you the practical responses that you need in order to get a a good grade before God. Again, that's not a great metaphor, okay? Don't don't beat me (laughs) up for that. It's the grace of God, it's all the grace of God. Okay, so there's five of these different sections that we're gonna work through. I'm gonna work through two of them now. We're gonna go through the first two and then next week we'll go through the, through the last three. But what we're gonna see is that Jesus uses phrases and laws from the Old Testament to help us understand the character and nature of God and what God's expectations are for us now. So my first application question is this. What are areas in my life where I follow rules instead of following Jesus? because it's really easy for us to make up some rules that we need to follow and just keep doing that and say, I'm good because these are the 15 rules that I follow, this this is the way that I'm obedient, right? We set up a rule because it's helpful for us, it's good for us, and then we rely on that rule too much and we don't actually follow Jesus. So I'm gonna give you hopefully a practical example. How many of you guys have a step tracker on your watch? Fitbit, Garmin, Apple Watch. Yeah, okay. How many of you guys do contests with your steps? Even if it's with yourself. Come on, really? Am I the only person? Okay, there's a couple of you. Yeah, yeah, Okay. So here's the thing. Why do I have the step tracker in my watch? The step tracker in my watch is to remind me to be a certain level of active during the day, right? Like if I can't give five or seven or 10,000 steps in a day, I'm like, nope, I've been sitting around on my butt too much. I need to get up and move. That's the point of it. okay. So that's that's the reason behind it. So how many of you with a step tracker that keep track of it have ever just swung your arm while you're sitting there? <laughs> okay, I got a couple of you, right? My sister-in-law admitted one time we had a step contest and she was like, guys, I know I won, but I have to admit, I sat at my computer and banged my fist on my desk for like an hour to win this. you are like, glad that confession is good for your soul. So that's, that completely like that's completely beside the point. Like if the point is to be active, to walk around, to do things, right? To not sit on my butt. Sitting on my butt and shaking my arm in order to get my steps in defeats the whole purpose, right? There's two different ways to approach it. Be healthy, be active, or sit in your butt and follow the rules. Often in our Christian lives, we, the, the rule's there for a reason. It's helpful, it's positive. But we figure out the way to cheat the rule to get credit, before God, and our heart is completely opposite of where the rule was intended to put us, okay? So that's what we're talking about. So the first, the first kind of rule that we're gonna deal with is about righteousness and anger. So verse 21, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So start with verse 21, we all agree on that. You shouldn't kill people. You shouldn't be violent. You shouldn't beat people up. Like, okay, we can agree on that. That's a good rule to have. Jesus goes a couple steps backwards. Verse 22, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus kind of moves it up the chain a little bit. He's like, okay, if you're violent, that's definitely a problem. But also if you're angry at your brother in your heart and you call him an idiot, you're running the risk of the judgment of God. Like just because it's here and it hasn't worked its way out into actual violence doesn't mean that it's not offensive to God. Okay, so murder, murder is an overreaction, right? Like murder is a thing that you're like, there's no way that you can justify murder. You're, act, you're overreacting in violence to take somebody else's life. Okay, I've never done that. But have I overreacted out of my anger? Yeah, I definitely have, right? Like my anger is mostly an overreaction to things that people have done that I don't like. Whether or not it's wrong enough to warrant that is completely different. Jack on Tuesday saw my anger, right? Like we're coming into the roundabout at in front of Chippewa Valley High School. I drive through that like 10 times a week. It's not that difficult. And the lady in the next entrance, like she she hesitated in the wrong place, right? She pulled out about halfway into my lane and then she decided maybe I need to not be here. And I'm like, started to say some things. I didn't swear my kids were in the car, but like, I'm like, sweetie, you gotta make a decision. Like I'm yelling at her and, You know, not the appropriate thing. It's my anger that's lashing out. That was not, like, so my anger just kind of bubbled out of the surface. It was an overreaction. That was sin. That was wrong in my heart. Why? Because that's not what God called me to do. And so the anger that we have is inconsistent with the character of God. That's why it's a problem. Because it's not reflecting the grace and the mercy that God has offered me. And then Jesus goes a little bit further, right? It's not just when people are mad at you, but also if you're offering your gift at the altar, verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. He's like, if you're in church and you're worshiping and you remember not that you made somebody else mad, but that somebody else made you mad, you need to go fix that. Because it's not about who makes me mad. It's actually about my actions. So to the degree that, I, that somebody else is frustrated with me, I still have to have the, hum, the humility and the grace that God extended me, right? Like God wasn't the one that needed to make amends between me and him. I was the problem. God came to me and reached out in grace. So then I have a responsibility to offer that to other people. I need to reach out in grace to other people, even if they're the problem. And honestly, we're human. It's never just them that this problem, right? Like it's, so my pride and my self-righteousness about being right in this particular argument is still inconsistent with the character of God. I still have to say, I can't have that attitude. I have to have the humility and the grace that God showed toward me when he offered himself, right? So I'm the one that has to go resolve that. And then he goes even further, right? Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest the accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you'll be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. So then he's saying, listen, if there's a charge, like if there's a legal issue, do not wait to get to court. Deal with it before you get there. Why? It doesn't say whether you're guilty or innocent. He's like, listen, just fix the problem. It's better to have the humility and the grace to say, we need to resolve this. We need to be you know, mature about this and not take this because you don't get your day in court. You might not get to be like, you're the guilty one. I knew it. I proved you wrong. Like, Nope, you've got to let that go. If it's you're exonerated, you're, you don't get to stand there and be like, I told you I was right. I told you I was innocent. You, you accused me and that was wrong. Jesus says, no, don't, don't try and grandstand. Don't try and be the one that's so proud of how, what you accomplished. Figure out a solution. Deal with it in a way that's humble and not everybody knows the solution. It's okay. It's about your humility and, and your, your attitude before God more than it's about winning the competition. So this is a really pragmatic response. This is something that Jesus says that we ought to do that impacts the relationships that we have with people. And when Jesus says, you need to leave your gifts at the altar and go deal with it, what that means is that there's not an excuse to not do it now. And in a room that's this size, that probably means there's a couple people that ought to be sending a text in church saying, hey, we need to talk, right? Because there's probably a couple of us that know that somebody has something against us and we're like, I I could fix my half of that problem. I can start that. So my application question is this. What can I do to restore any broken relationships in my life? I acknowledge the fact that there are some people that are unwilling to reconcile, that they're unrepentant, that there's broken relationships that cannot be fixed. I'm not saying that there aren't. What I'm saying is, is, we have a responsibility before God that if we can fix them, we ought to try, right? If it's someone else's sin that started the problem, that doesn't mean that you don't have a responsibility. If they're continuing in sin, they're unrepentant in sin, then there's a good chance that your attempt is gonna be met with nothing, right? If they, so there's that, but... Most of the time, it's one of us sinned, the other of us sinned. We're both angry at each other. We're both bickering at each other. And if one of us would just set aside our pride and have a little bit of humility, there could be reconciliation. Jesus is saying, you gotta be that one. You have to be the one that sets that aside. And again, this isn't a rule that we follow. It's not like, oh, if I do this, then God's going to love me. It's, I need the Holy Spirit to do a big old work in my heart so that I have the humility and the grace to do that because it's not happening without him. Remember, true righteousness is deeper than following the rules. It's about a relationship with Jesus and it comes from a relationship with Jesus. So it has to be the Holy Spirit saying, let's go deal with this and being obedient and following what he calls you to do. The second specific issue that Jesus addresses is lust. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you should not commit adultery. Again, this is not controversial. Everybody's gonna sit there and be like, you should not sleep with a spouse that is not your spouse. That's a fair thing. We all pretty much agree with that. No cultures are actually good with that, right? Like there's always that, that sort of like, yeah, no, if you're married, then that's, that's for you guys. But again, Jesus doesn't leave it there. He moves back to the the mental part of the process. In verse 28, he says, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's the same idea that we just dealt with with anger. It's not the external action that causes the break in your relationship with God. It's the internal heart attitude. So I have to camp here for a minute. I know we don't have much time, The problem is, is our culture is completely backwards on this one, right? Like there's some things where the culture that you live in is helpful, right? So Jesus says, don't commit murder. Our culture says also, don't commit murder. It's really easy to live in the cultural sort of way that everybody else does and not murder people. Like we don't live in a place where you're looked down on for not doing like a revenge killing, right? Like there have been cultures that are like that. We don't live in one. Yay, we don't have to worry about that as a temptation to the same degree. Good job for us. Unfortunately, our culture says sexual desire is a great thing. And if you just want it, like go get it 100%. Like that's what our culture says. And so it's very difficult as the people of God to say, that's not okay. Right? It's, it's a completely different attitude. Our culture's values on sexuality are almost completely backward. Consent is a thing that our culture says is important. I agree with that. But that's like the lowest of the lowest levels of possibility to get to a point of a healthy sexual relationship. Jesus is saying, listen, sexual desire is intended for marriage. Keep it within marriage. If it's not pointed within marriage, it's a problem automatically. So Jesus says, no cheating on your spouse. Yes, absolutely. We, we agree with that, right? That's a cultural, yes, you shouldn't do that. It also means you shouldn't be sleeping with your girlfriend, your boyfriend, or your friends with benefits. Like that's part of that, right? It means no porn. It means not just staring at you know, your Instagram feed at two in the morning and looking at whatever pops across there because that's probably not healthy either. It it means not choosing movies or other media or whatever that intentionally inflame, not that they they show something, but they inflame desire that's not pointed toward your spouse. Like it's a lot different from, oh, I'm not supposed to do this thing. It's actually what points my heart in a certain direction. And the direction that Jesus says we ought to turn our hearts sexually is toward our spouse. That's it. There's no negotiation. That's the only part. And this flies in the face of all the cultural wisdom. Like everything in our culture says, if you, if you want it, then celebrate the fact that you want it and then go do it. That's what our culture says. And Jesus is like, if you want it, probably sin. <laughs> like think it through, pointed in one direction, that's where it goes. And Jesus is not goofing around with this. You're like, oh, okay. That's you know, a thing that's different from our culture. Jesus is very serious about this. Look at verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go to hell. He's saying uncontrolled sexual desire will send you to hell, period. Lots of sins send you to hell, right? But this is definitely one of them. All the sins send you to hell in case you missed that. But in light of that, we need to actually be a little bit extreme when it comes to avoiding sin. Now, historically, there have been people that have taken Jesus literally and chopped off parts of their bodies, not hands and eyes, but parts of their bodies to avoid sexual temptation. Guess what? It didn't work. Why? Because it's a heart problem. There's not a physical thing that you can change that's gonna get rid of the problem in your heart. I actually had a friend who was blind. He, he came to Christ He was blinded in his early 20s. He came to Christ after that. We were having a conversation one time. He's like, it was decades past that. He was married. He goes, yeah, I still struggle with lust. It's stuff that was in my brain from when I was a kid, right? Like the fact that he was blind, plucking out his eye. Now he didn't do it, but the fact that he was blind didn't change the fact that that temptation was still there. Why? It's a matter of the heart. That being said, if we choose to focus on those things, that's a decision that's made with our heart, right? Like having the the decision over and over again, I'm gonna look at this, I'm gonna think this way, this is my attitude toward this, that says where our heart is pointed. And this is why legalistic efforts don't work. If you're like, these are the rules and we're gonna fix this with these external rules those aren't gonna change it because it's still in our hearts. I went to a very conservative Christian high school. All the girls had very strict rules about what they were allowed to wear. Did that mean that none of the guys in that school struggled with lust? No, it didn't mean that. Why? Because it's in your heart. It doesn't matter what the other person is doing if it's in your heart, right? And so a lot of times we set up all these rules like, oh, this is, I'm not gonna look at this. I'm not gonna watch this. I'm gonna separate myself from this. If your heart's in the wrong place, you're still gonna get pulled into that temptation. Matt Channing calls it trimming the weeds, right? Like if, I've got, if I'm cutting out the external things that I can see, then it's just chopping off the weeds. You know what happens if you trim the weeds? They come back, exactly. <laughs> Three days later, you're like, oh yeah, I still have weeds, right? How do you get rid of weeds? You pull them out by the roots. You kill the roots and they stay there. It's, you have to deal with it in your heart. Now I'm not saying, again, if you, if you refuse to deal with even trimming them, you're gonna have a problem, but just trimming them doesn't fix the problem. You have to allow the Holy Spirit to transform your heart. So if we're saying you need to be extreme, you're like, what, what would we think of as extreme in this culture? Now, it's, it, can't be a, it can't just be external, but where's your heart at, right? Like, what are you pointed at? So if your TikTok or your Insta is a steady diet of things that cause you to, to desire things other than what you should, right? If TikTok and Insta are like, oh no, I I go there to lust. It's not porn, but I go there to lust. Delete the app. It's not that complicated. And if you delete all the apps and you're still struggling with it, getting rid of your smartphone shouldn't be that extreme. Like a flip phone, you're like, what? Nobody has a flip phone anymore. You know what? Would you rather have a flip phone and be made fun of or go to hell? And I'm not saying that's a one-to-one. I'm saying if you're serious about holiness, a flip phone is not that big of a sacrifice, Again, it's this balance of where is my heart pointing me and what are the easy things that I can do to avoid the temptation? Like I'm saying phones, guys, we know it's everywhere. And there's lots of opportunities. If your heart is pointed in the right place, you are gonna take some serious steps to get rid of those temptations. If your heart's not in the right place, you're just gonna keep doing it. But again, the things that we put in front of ourselves both reveal and reinforce what's in our hearts, right? So if it's in my heart, then I choose it. And then that reinforces that that's what I want. And so there's, there's this sort of cycle of reinforcement that happens with that. My, ex, my, my application question here is this, how serious am I about getting rid of sexual temptation? So am I, am I okay with a level of external conformity that makes it look like I'm putting in some effort? Or am I actually serious about this? Am I willing to do things that feel or look a little extreme in order to win that battle? Or have I just allowed myself to sort of slide into this culturally acceptable mindset of, I feel like I want it, therefore I do it, and everybody's fine. So we look at these two rules together. And what we realize is that the things that Jesus tells us to do are pretty simple, but they are not easy. Like it's not that complicated to say, where is my heart pointed? What am I doing internally that, that either points me towards sin or allows me to wallow in sin or that focuses me on God? We can recognize those issues in our hearts fairly quickly but making the changes, man, that's hard, (laughs) right? To just be disciplined and and constantly go after like, this is a sin and I can't do that and I have to repent. Like you end up repenting quite a bit every day, like a lot. (laughs) We know the situations that we place ourselves in that lead to these sins. We know the choices that we make that lead to sins. And yet- we have to decide whether or not we're gonna keep doing that, right? Like we can't just say, oh, I do this, it's fine. and, And this is the direction I go. And Jesus didn't say these things because he didn't understand how we struggle. Like he didn't just say these things and be like, good luck guys, hope you fail that one too. Like you're gonna fail that one too. So hope you, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. The thing is, is Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit to win this, but also he designed us, he knows what's good for us. And he's like, it's actually really good to have that struggle, to win that battle against temptation, whether it's anger or lust or whatever, to to go in and say, I know that I can't do this. I need the power of the Holy Spirit and I constantly need to be before God about winning this battle over and over and over again. Okay. So I'm going to wrap up now. I'm going to just go through review. I know we're, we're pushing it as far as time, but let's, let's review. So Jesus starts the ser- this section of the Sermon on the Mount with a conversation about the Old Testament, right? And, and the conversation is we can't keep the law. And yet the rules that God reminds us of are very helpful for us to live our lives. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit to lead us the direction we need to go. We can't just say, these are the rules and I'm going to follow these rules because we'll fail. We'll fail. And so the first question we ask ourselves is, what are the areas in my life where I follow the rules instead of following Jesus? Right, because we've got rules that we set up to protect ourselves. Those are good, those are helpful. But if I set those up and I don't follow Jesus, then I get stuck on thinking that those rules are the things that saves me. But then as Jesus is teaching, he deals with the heart beneath some really common sins, right? So the first one was anger and how it destroys relationships. If you go to violence, obviously you've gone too far, but also if you hold bitterness and unforgiveness and self-righteousness in your heart, that still is gonna break your relationship with God. That's still gonna hurt your relationship with other people. So as people that are trying to follow Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, what can I do to restore any broken relationships in my life? And then Jesus looks at sexual sin and says, again, it's not about the end result of a lifetime of focusing on these things. It's about the heart underneath. And I have to look at, am I enjoying things that are wrong? Am I putting myself in a situation that's sinful and unwilling to to break with things because I enjoy it? Right? Or am I actually willing to say, you know what, that's wrong. I'm walking away from that as a temptation. And so the question there is, how serious am I about getting rid of sexual temptation in my life? And ultimately it comes back to, I can't do this. Guys, if we're going to try and do it on our own, we're going to fail again and again and again and again, and it's going to be bad. It has to be the Holy Spirit. It has to be the righteousness that Jesus brings to us and says, this is for you, and I have to rely on that because I can't do it. It has to be through his Holy Spirit. True righteousness is deeper than any of the rules that we think we're going to follow, right? It has to come from Jesus. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus. <laughs> we thank you for the fact that he gives us the grace to live the way that we ought to. We know that we can't do this. We know that if we try and follow your rules to be holy the way that you call us to be, that we're gonna fail. We're gonna be over infinity and, and we're gonna go to hell. But Jesus came out of love and gave himself for us. And now when we repent, he gives us his, our right the righteousness we need. So we thank you for the fact that we stand before you as your children and you don't look at our failure. You look at the fact that Jesus did it for us and that we're submitting to him. We we ask for your forgiveness now for the things that we've we've done badly. We know that we're not perfect, but we also know that you love us and that you provided a way and that you see us as your children. We thank you for that. I pray that this week, you would remind us that we need your grace over and over that we would turn to you, run to, to you in our time of need to receive your grace. We pray this in your name.